A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Part of the reason we wanted to start this season of Hot and Bothered with How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days is because it is so steeped in classic rom-com tidbits and tropes. We have characters betting on their dating lives. Matthew McConaughey doesn't chase Kate Hudson through an airport, but he does chase her on his motorcycle while she's heading to the airport. Both of our main characters have funny sidekick friends. Ben has his two nerdy friends who follow him around all the time, and Andy has Michelle, the uncoolest girl possible, except that she's played by the coolest girl ever, Katherine Hahn. So this film is a perfect specimen for our experimentation. And while I know that all of these things are classics or cliches of the rom-com genre, I don't really know the history of where these tropes come from. And I still don't understand some of the basic tenets that are at work here. The writers of How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days have said that it is inspired by screwball comedy and Battle of the Sexes films of the 1930s and 40s. But I'm not even 100% sure that I know what Battle of the Sexes means. So today, we're going to get to the heart of that. This is the quintessential rom-com, yes. But why? What is the basic outline of the genre? I want to talk to someone who understands what that means better than I do. To that end, we called Kathleen Carlin. Kathleen is an emerita professor at the University of Oregon. She is the author of The Unruly Woman, Gender and the Genres of Laughter. She is also the author of Unruly Girls, Unrepentant Mothers, Redefining Feminism on Screen, in addition to numerous other seminal, brilliant publications. Something that really interested me in her book, Unruly Girls, Unrepentant Mothers, is that she emphasizes a single historical period in film, beginning in the early 1990s. She writes about how in this period, we see the emergence of girl culture and third-wave feminism, but also a strong turn towards conservatism. Women could have it all, but all meant a corporate job, straight marriage, and children. She and other scholars of this period coined the term post-feminism to define the moment. In her works, Carlin argues that post-feminism is less an ideology or a movement than a process by which popular culture undoes feminism right before our eyes. How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days is a movie about a strong, brilliant, beautiful woman. Kate Hudson gets top billing and is the main character. But it's also a movie that ruthlessly makes fun of femininity. 
And I want to understand that and how those two things coexist. The point of these episodes is to teach me how to watch rom-coms with a critical eye. And Kathleen is going to start me on this journey. She's going to help me source the ingredients that I have eaten fully baked my whole life. I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and this is Hot and Bothered. Hi, Kathleen. Hey, Vanessa. Thank you so much for getting on the phone with me. My first question is just, why did you start writing about rom-coms? What interests you about them? (laughs) Great question. I got interested because feminism, at the time I was in graduate school, feminism and, and film studies was steeped in melodrama. And that's very much about women's suffering. And the theory was a little bit stalled out at the time. And I loved the screwball comedies. And I also saw a couple of films that blew open my mind about the power of women's laughter. So mm-hmm. there was a movie I saw at the time called A Question of Silence. It's not widely available. It is unbelievable because it it's by a woman. And there's a scene at the end where these women who have committed a murder are in a courtroom and they all erupt in this unbelievable laughter, which basically, it's not a comedy, it's a brutal, highly analytical movie. Very, very serious. But in this moment, I just saw the dramatic evidence of female solidarity that happens through shared laughter. That started me on this journey to rom-coms. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So take me back to sort of the beginning of rom-coms. If I'm trying to understand when, like, the rom-com starts, like, do I go back to Shakespeare? You have to go back farther than that. A lot okay, farther. amazing. You go back a lot farther than that. You go back to the Greeks. Exciting. To this thing called new comedy. And comedy is highly conventionalized. The plots are identical. The character types are identical. They've been around for 2,500 years. And the Greeks set this thing in motion, this structure in motion, that is what is the essence of the rom-com. You know, along comes Shakespeare, and he grabs hold of that structure, those character types, that conflict, and he does his brilliant stuff with Shakespearean comedy and romance. And then it has its iterations and versions from that point on until today. I mean, it is an enduring social problem-solving machine. Ooh, what does that mean, a social problem-solving machine? The brilliance of rom-com is it is driven, I'd say almost always, by some kind of, and I think this is true of a lot of narrative art in general, but art is a way of working through social problems. You displace them a little bit in art, kind of chew on them a bit, figure out a solution, and then wrap it up. Rom-com is brilliant because the structure of the couple is always about a, a couple and the couple that is meant to be together, but they don't know it. And there's usually some obstacle, whether it's the father, the law of the father, the power of the patriarchy, class, race, families that hate each other, whatever it is that keeps them apart. So all this stuff is dumped on that couple and we know they have to get together. 
because society mm-hmm. needs babies mm-hmm. and they need to have parties. Mm-hmm. And the way you do that is you have love and sex. Mm-hmm. Basically, the idea is that you displace a social conflict on the couple and then the power of love and the need of, of course, the sexual drive, the need to pull that couple together is a means of saying, okay, maybe we don't have to hate each other. Maybe Mm. that these opposing classes can find a way to be together. It's also generational because Mm -hmm. the older people are always involved in keeping the young lovers apart. But youth triumphs in comedy. In tragedy, the old wins. In comedy, the young wins. So Kathleen, are there things that like we can see in a rom-com that came out this week that you're like, that exact thing happens in Shakespeare. That exact thing happens in ancient Greek comedies. I mean, for one thing, there's this structure that you start with some, I mean, it's some kind of order. You move into a place of disorder and chaos where the problems get worked out and solved. And then you return back to the place of order. So that structure is always, pretty much always there. In that place of topsy-turvy inversion, chaos, craziness, in that place of freedom, everybody gets a taste of what a freer, more liberated society might feel like. And then that you come back at the end, bringing that sense of freedom to renew the social order. So that structure is always there. But I love rom-coms. To me, a great rom-com teaches the patriarchy a lesson, and it's the woman that teaches that lesson because during the rom-com in the topsy-turvy world, she gets to be a woman on top, at least in the middle. At the end, you have to knit it back together again. And the guy, the guy is better. So it's going to be okay, but it's a conservative genre. Yeah. So anyway, does that answer the question? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, I mean, the movement from law to disorder back to a new freer, legal system, character types persist for centuries. We constantly find certain kinds of people funny and they don't change very much. And then, you know, the tension between the sexes is, you know, the, the, the battle of the sex is pretty, pretty ageless. What, what does that mean? The battle of the sexes? Because when I hear battle of the sexes, what I think from the phrasing is like, girls versus boys, like Mm -hmm. which gender is better. What does it mean when we say something is a battle of the sexes movie? You know, I don't actually use that all that much. Yeah. I mean, that sort of implies a kind of equality that doesn't exist in the real world. Right. But I think part of the, the pleasure of romantic comedy is we do enter a fictional space where there can be much more. I mean, drama has to have equals. Mm-hmm. You know, for conflict to be exciting, you have to be duking it out between equals. So mm-hmm. that's why I was really interested in rom-coms because that's the only place in typical narratives where women really have a lot of power. I mean, they're always peripheral. It's always the guy's story, that hero's adventure, the hero's journey. The woman is the prize at the end. The woman doesn't have anything to do with anything except sit there and be beautiful and wait. You know, and back to the Greeks, Penelope just, you know, Mm -hmm. she's waiting, she's waiting, she's waiting. In comedy, in that period of inversion, the guy has to go down. The woman has to come up. 
and she teaches him a lesson. So that was also, besides the power of laughter, women laughing at men. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's utopian. And I think it's empowering for women to see women really can fight with men and assert themselves before, you know, the men put them back down in, in heterosexuality and marriage. That's all about a woman assuming her proper place under the guy. So yeah. the battle is, it's a fiction. It is a playful, sexy, you know, I mean, it's more interesting if the woman and the men are kind of equally matched. So, yeah. So this goes back to the Greeks and Shakespeare. When did it become gendered? I'm guessing it wasn't like only women who went to comedies when it was in Athens. So like, when is it that it's like rom-coms are for girls and action movies are for boys? Interesting question. Because women, of course, weren't allowed on the stage in Shakespeare's time. (laughs) Right. And I think also in the screwball period, because it was very sophisticated comedies. Right. And I, I think men loved those films as much as women did. Absolutely. And you know, it's quite interesting that the, all the the great male leads during the classical Hollywood era, these guys who played the very strong manly men, they would go into a screwball comedy and I mean, they're humiliated Absolutely. by the women. And I think there's a certain kind of the confidence kind of masculinity doesn't mind a certain humiliation or masochism. So the whole exploration of gender becomes complex and interesting. It allows men to kind of step out of that rigid, you know, notion of what it is to be a man. So men can play around also with ideological masculinity. They could be humiliated and enjoy it. So when did it become a chick flick? That's a really good question. I mean, you tell me what you think while I start to chew on that. (laughs) Because that's definitely, there's a kind of misogyny in that. I mean, Doris Day, right? When it became pastels. Like James Gardner and Doris Day movies, those are for women. You're right. And I think the the 50s were so reactionary socially and culturally that, you know, getting the women back into the home after the war, it was such a repressive decade for women locked back up in these suburban, you know, excruciatingly controlled, boring lives and then making, you know, movies that try to celebrate that. It's a yeah. bad time for women and for romantic comedy. It's a bad time. I mean, it's a marketing idea, right? The chick yeah. flick. That's all yeah. it is. And so it's like, when did Hollywood decide to start marketing these movies primarily to women? To women. Yeah. It's like the teenager, right? It's a total, it's a an arbitrary social construct. It really is, but that's a that's an absolutely great question. I'm not coming up with any good explanations. I think with the slip into post-feminism becomes interesting because then it becomes like some of these movies that guys are just terribly not interested in. And and you see the reification and the revalorization of shopping, of consumer culture, the kind of the worst of old femininity just on the table again. And it's really, it's it's kind of disturbing. I mean, it's very disturbing. Can you just define post-feminism yeah. for me? I, well, I'll do my best because it's, yeah. it's a slippery term and there was a lot of debate, a lot of struggle to understand it. It is not a feminist movement. Mm-hmm. It's more a condition. And it's a condition that's deeply entangled in two things. One is neoliberalism, 
It's mm-hmm. a product of this larger socioeconomic order. It's, it's inseparable from that. And it's also inseparable from the notion that feminism happened. And it's there. And it's a good thing. But let's move on now. Check. Feminism did it. Yeah, look at our world today, right? We don't, do we need feminism? I mean, in a, in a yeah. nutshell, it's very much about the consumer culture, individual agency. You can do it yourself if you just read Composure magazine and learn how to do all these things. You can yeah. take care of yourself. You're individually powerful because we live in America. Or we live in this neoliberal age where the individual has all the power that's needed. You just need to just suck yourself up, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I think it's also a racial. Um, it's so interesting that a lot of this post-feminist discourse it's a very white milieu. A lot of these chick flicks tend to be, I would say, targeting a certain kind of, they take for granted a certain whiteness as a cultural norm as well. Yeah. So where do you see post-feminism in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days? Well, first you get the sense that we're already beyond feminism, so we can have a magazine like Composure, which is, of course, Cosmo in disguise. That is mm-hmm. the quintessential post-feminist position for women. You still need to monitor yourself. You have to improve yourself. You have to learn how to be a woman. You can't just naturally be that way because you are going to be like Michelle, get it all wrong. But to become a woman requires constant self-surveillance. You have to take the The tests, you have to follow the directions about how to be a successful woman. There's also some subtle misogyny in here, I think, because Mm -hmm. the sexual politics of the movie are very, very conservative. Mm -hmm. You could be a woman boss, but what are you going to be? A boss like this boss? Mm -hmm. The aggressive, strong, powerful woman is not a very appealing woman. The wife of the jewelry guy. Mm -hmm. We had a little ageism going on there, mm-hmm. a little sexism going on, and she's a grotesque. Mm-hmm. Powerful women, women with money, women with power, are not well-treated in this movie at all. Mm-hmm. What else is post-feminism? Materialism, that mm-hmm. women are going to want to be frosted in diamonds. That, oh, that's a cool thing. That the best thing about modern life is that, well, women have money now, so they can buy diamonds, and they can mm-hmm. buy them for themselves. Like the valorization of, the most materialistic aspects of consumer culture. A woman is liberated because she can buy herself diamonds. Is that what power and liberation are all about? Yeah. Is frosting yourself with diamonds? Very, very conservative. The sexual politics to me are, are really troubling because the femininity is the butt of the joke. I mean, it's hilarious. Yeah. It's very funny. And, and I think Kate Hudson is brilliant, hysterical, but yeah. That femininity is the butt of the joke. Yeah, every time. Everything we laugh at in that movie is... Ha ha, he doesn't get to go to the next game. He has to go to Celine Dion. Uh, right, right. And, and the very fact that Michelle is a joke because she's emotional. Because yeah. she owns her emotions. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. So... The ending of the movie, it seems to have two endings to me that one seems kind of not necessarily feminist, but not post-feminist, and the other seems very post-feminist. Michelle's ending is that she gets the guy even though she's emotional, right? Andy has spent the whole movie being like, God, Michelle is too needy and too whiny and too emotional, so she's never going to get a boyfriend. And the guy comes crawling back. And so Michelle gets her man by being herself. But then Kate Hudson, Andy, has to, like, give up her political job interview in order to be with Ben. And that seems very post-feminist to me. Exactly. Of, like, well, you can go have it all, but wouldn't you rather stay here? You said it. Beautifully. The the second couple, I, I neglect to mention that in the best of a screwball comedy rom-com in the end, there's in Shakespeare, there's like eight couples. On, couples. There's, it, it, you multiply yeah. more is more is more is, and the more the merrier. And that's a kind of leftover trope where one couple's not enough. Let's have two or three or four or 10. So yeah. the fact that we do have Michelle get her boyfriend is really part of it. But what's lacking in this film is the Andy character is the one who's flawed and he gets to teach her. And that violates, to me, the fundamental rule of the delightful battle of the sexes when the woman educates the man. He's perfect. He, he can even change a baby's diaper. You know, he's the perfect guy. His mother loves her. She doesn't have any family. She doesn't have any milieu. She's just there. And, you know, we have such a history of rom-coms and screwball comedies where the guy learns that he's not accepting himself and the woman teaches typically he's in his head too much and he needs to get to get more in his body which is you know the sexual agenda of comedy is to get this guy out of his books but um here he's instructing her you know i'm calling your bluff i'm calling your bluff it's bullshit you know you're you're running away from yourself and she goes oh i guess i am i'll stay with you i'll work from new york It's confusing, though, right? Because it's like, it's unclear if Andy goes back to composure. I think we're to some extent left to believe that, like, she goes back and, like, tries to get a job at The Economist or something. And so what she learns is that she's a good enough writer. Now she doesn't have to jump through the composure hoops and that, like, it's actually okay to want to write about Tajikistan. And that's post-feminism. Sorry to interrupt, but that that is that's no. precisely post-feminism that wants to let you have it both ways. Or not not only both ways, many ways. It's right. My sense is that the movie makes it so it, it's inevitable that she's going to be with this guy, but why doesn't he follow her? Why doesn't he go down yeah. to DC? Why doesn't he say take that job? I could do advertising anywhere. There's no advertising in Washington, D.C. I don't know if you know that. The whole city. No ad. And that's another post-neoliberal uh, thing in this movie, too, is the world, the frame story in advertising. That's neoliberal culture that's based on selling stuff. 
And she's in, you know, journalism, which is also about selling ideology. So I think that's also kind of celebration of a world. The authentic world is on Staten Island, where they're probably whatever they are. It's working class. It's um, Republican and Republican. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can talk to us about Andy's relationship to femininity in the film. She weaponizes femininity in order to repulse Ben, right? Right, She um, wears more pink when she's trying to get rid of him. She matches more. She loves her little dog, right? Like it's all of these like femme signaling thing that she actually uses as an attempt to repulse him. And yet- diamonds are frosting and girls love it and she has the pretty dress and she the movie ends with her like not going away but coming back and so what is what is this movie saying about femininity god you this is oh it's um it's it's one of the fun things about the third wave of feminism was it was a, and I was extremely interested. And my, my second book was very much about why did my students reject feminism? And I think it had a lot to do with matrophobia and rejection of the second wave. And a part of becoming independent is you have to, you, the guys have to kill the father, the women have to kill the mother. And feminism had to do something of that too. So as my generation, we threw away all of those trappings of that kind of passive, coy, cute femininity to become what we were. Our daughters, and, you know, sort of Madonna was part of that thing, said, no, thank you. And they they reclaimed those tropes of femininity, but from insisting that you, you could do that and you could be powerful. And I think that was super interesting. Spice Girls were, at that time, mm-hmm. really, really interesting that you don't have to reject all that. You can be feminine and strong. I think it's fascinating. I think post-feminism tries to do it, and this movie kind of tries to do it, that it makes fun on the one hand of all of that excesses of femininity, but still you've got this beautiful, skinny, blonde woman who is classically feminine in a lot of ways. I think I think the woman still oh, has to please the guy. She yeah. loves sports. She wants to ride a motorcycle, drive a motorcycle. So she's a guy's girl. Mm-hmm. She she goes along yeah. with his life. And, and she's that particular kind of, that's a kind of femininity that is designed around male desire. Okay. I could, I could talk to you about this, like literally forever. This is my favorite thing, but we only have time for one more question. So my question is this. People are watching this now. What is something that you want them to pay attention to that we might not have been paying attention to until talking to you? We were going to talk about the female gaze and the reversal. We didn't get to that. The reversal of the old male gaze. And the movie, as a post-feminist movie, it does, it's slippery because I do think the female character does pretty much drive the narrative, even though she takes on this character. She she certainly drives the comedy because Matthew McConaughey is is a straight man. She's funny. And this is a comedy. So Mm -hmm. she's in charge narratively and performatively of this movie. And we do see 
he's a sex object and it's very blatant. It's very obvious. Glamour lighting on him, takes off his shirt. And you see the women looking at him. And I, I think the thing to think about or to ask people to think about is really what is this movie telling women about what they they want in romantic relationships? What What, what does it mean to be a, a woman, what does happiness mean for a woman? How does this movie set up goals for being a happy, fulfilled woman? What is involved in that? I'm not sure that's a good answer. No, I love it. It involves following your husband around and then retiring in Staten Island and hosting <laughs> BS parties, right? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. You give up your job and you go... She, she never had a family to be, I mean, we, we know nothing about her. Um, no, we never even see her apartment. That's true. <gasps> we see Michelle's apartment and it is flowers on flowers on flowers on flowers on flowers. Yeah. Literally every yeah. surface is covered in flowers. And then we see his apartment, which is the color of a pool table and a poker table, like literally the walls. And they didn't, I think they really didn't know what Andy's apartment would look like. Cause she's cool, but she's femme, but she like, what does this woman's apartment look like? So we in theory see it for five seconds in the opening credits where she's like rearranging furniture, but that's it. That is so good. She's an abstraction that this is the thing. Yeah. Maybe say, how does she represent a certain kind of ideal of femininity? Yeah. Who is the ideal woman according to this movie? Yeah. I mean, she doesn't have her period. That's one of the crimes she commits, right? <laughs> Is bringing tampons over to his house. Yeah. The ideal woman doesn't bleed. <laughs> Kathleen, thank you so much for coming and chatting about this. What an absolute delight. Absolute delight. Thank you for inviting me. It, it was a joy for me to kind of go back into these things I've thought about. And you brought such good questions, such good perspectives. And this movie is a very rich and meaty movie. You know, if you did a more obviously feminist movie, it would not be half as interesting as this. So thank you. I agree. So as I mentioned in the first episode, we had a big staff debate about which rom-com would be best suited for 10 episodes of discussion. And there was one passionate dissenter on our staff. And we thought, why not bring her onto the podcast to talk about this film scene by scene and hear what she thinks about the movie now that she is confronted with the reality that we will be spending months of company time talking about it. And that is our communications manager and brilliant improviser, Hannah Rehat. So let me give Hannah a call. Hi, Hannah. Hi. So I don't want to say that you were almost in tears, but you were very <laughs> passionately against us talking about how to lose a guy in 10 days. What yeah. was that emotional reaction about? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> this is not what we agreed to talk about. <laughs> Why we're talking do you about the movie. <laughs> Sorry. How do you think yeah. this movie participated in that strong emotional no. reaction? Beautifully rephrased. 
Well, I just have to say, like, everything is relative, right? So we were considering a couple other movies. Sure. So, like, when when pitched against other films that <laughs> you could have tackled, I got really passionate about, about <laughs> yes. it. I would say it became my personality for, for a solid 15 minutes that I that I didn't want this to be the film that you all chose. I think this film, I watched it, I think, once when I was a kid. And then when you all said you were considering it, I watched it again this summer with a friend. And... My memory of it prior to my rewatch, prior to my rewatch this summer, was that it was like really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Like it just made me really, really, really uncomfortable. Yeah. Like the cringe humor element, like the comedy is coming from cringe and I don't enjoy that. And I don't enjoy that in any movie. Me neither. So I think it was a very, uh, you know, (laughs) where in your body are you feeling this feeling (laughs) in the like seven-year-old like stomach drop that I had viewing it the first time of like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. And embarrassment is really hard for me. That's one of the hardest emotions for me to experience personally and also that I'm uh, very sensitive to in viewing. So there was that. There were a couple other things. Totally. But that's the first thing that comes to mind. And whenever it gets to that part of the movie, I'm like, ugh, now I have to watch this like montage of her being increasingly horrible. I am totally with you. But you are like, you are a professional comedian. You are someone who thinks about comedy as part of your professional life. Mm -hmm. Why do you think some people enjoy cringe humor? It it does kind of baffle me (laughs) (laughs) Um, because on a personal level, it doesn't make sense. But I think that to laugh at some things, you either have to really identify and feel extremely like seen by something. Like you're like, oh my gosh, this comedian or this performance is like putting words to a thing that, that gives me space to like laugh at myself or like laugh at the other person in this dynamic or whatever it is. Like there's an element of, finally feeling seen and that being funny or a truth about something that you've sort of had an inkling about being put to words, right? But then I also think people have a tendency to laugh at things that when you actually have distance between you and the subject matter, people Mm -hmm. can laugh. You know how there are jokes that some people are offended by and some people find really funny. And sometimes people who are really close to the subject material find it really funny. And sometimes people who are very distanced from it, find it very funny. And I think with cringe humor, some people are able to have a lot of distance between themselves and what they're viewing. And it's funny to see people fall. Like some people, I think maybe it's like a human thing, but I don't like watching people fall. It feels, I feel too close to it. But there are certain viewers who can create distance between themselves and the material such that, I mean, it is funny to watch somebody try something and not succeed if you're not feeling bad for them. Right. Some people are able to be like, it's a movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, that's not how I consume art. <laughs> like, I will well, say my yeah. 11-year-old stepdaughter, she watches scenes like this like it's a Hitchcock movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's so suspenseful whether or not she's really going to humiliate herself, whether or not she's really going to go as far as you think she's going to go. Yeah. And Amy likes that feeling of suspense. Oh, interesting. And Mm -hmm. so I think that there is something also about that. It's like, it's suspense with these like teeny tiny stakes rather than a bomb. It's like, is she really going to wipe his nose for him in front of his friends? Mm -hmm. And so I I think that there is a kind way to experience it. Yeah. I think that's part of it too. People like to watch people do things that they themselves want to do, right? Like there's some relief in being like, wow, she really went there. I would never really go there. And maybe that's liberatory for some people. I also think some people have a better handle on like knowing 
where the scene's going to end. I know that she's not actually going to be embarrassed. I'm able to watch that movie and understand that she's in control of the situation. But I think as like a seven-year-old watching it or however old I was, it didn't feel like she was in control of that. It felt like she was embarrassed. And then as a modern or as an adult viewer, I'm like, oh, she's she's not embarrassed. She's doing this all by design. She's very in control of this. I don't have to worry about her. And there's this, I'm going to butcher it, but there's a Stephen Colbert quote. I think, I think it's him, but like, it's hard to laugh when you're afraid. Like, mm-hmm. you can't laugh if you're afraid. And so there's some element, too, of that distance where it's like, as a kid, I think I was, like, worried, you know, afraid. I was worried for her. Right. And if you don't worry for her, then you can have fun with this, like, extreme behavior that you yourself would never indulge. Yeah. So, Hannah, I made you watch the opening scene of the movie in order to hear more about your response to it. So I will set the scene for everybody who didn't rewatch it with us. So what this scene includes is Andy Anderson at her workplace. It starts with her reading the last line of her most recent how-to column because she's the how-to girl. And this how-to column is how to achieve peace in Tajikistan. And we have just seen several minutes of like how to feng shui your life, how to get a better butt. And now it's like, no, Andy is a very serious person who can figure out how to bring peace to to Tajikistan. And you see her interact with one of her colleagues and Andy expresses that this is what she actually wants to write about. She wants to write about things that matter, like politics and foreign affairs and not be the quote unquote how to girl. And then we find out that she has flirted her way into two Knicks finals tickets. And then she realizes that their third musketeer in this friend group employee has not made it into work yet. And so she is rushing out the door in her white, a knight in shining armor with makeup samples. And she grabs a sweater from a rack that's floating by and runs off to rescue a friend. What do you think of the scene? Um, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. (laughs) (laughs) You may have less work to do on me than any of us realized. (laughs) It wasn't cringy, I guess, speaking to the thing that is my like first initial biggest bad feeling about the film. It's not cringy at all. It's so efficient. You get like such a good sense of like who she is and then immediately what she wants and the world that she's in. And I think it's a really good example of what of how efficient uh, romantic comedies specifically have to be. So I loved it. That said, (laughs) Tajikistan, finding peace in Tajikistan, the I'm different than any other girl thing that her friend is like, oh, you got tickets for like what, the ice capades or something like that? And she's like, no, 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 the NBA finals. Like, I'm so... Cool girl. Cool girl, cool girl. And you said this, you said it in the first episode, like the movie believes in the cool girl. And I think that that is absolutely like that leaves a bad taste in my mouth in 2024 and i think it i think it might have when i was young but but it, it definitely leaves a worse taste the older i get absolutely i want to push back on one thing but mm-hmm. i don't know if this is my 2024 lens projecting sure. here so what happens is her friend is like you flirted your way into these tickets they got delivered for you earlier And Kate Hudson, Andy, says they're tickets for the most artistic display of of athletic prowess. And her friend goes, the ice capades? And Andy goes, no, the NBA finals. Her friend who says the ice capades is like a hot, competent woman. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think we're supposed to laugh at her. Or Mm -hmm. do you think we're supposed to laugh at her? We're definitely supposed to think Andy is cool, but we're not supposed to think that this friend is an idiot. 
No, I don't think so. I don't think, you know, I would say there are many films that are meaner to women than this movie is. And I don't think we are supposed to laugh at that friend, but I do think that she is being positioned against Andy and we are supposed to think Andy's cooler. And so the subtext or like what we, what we glean from that is like, it is cooler to be a hot, thin, blonde girl who also likes basketball. (laughs) Right. Than it is to be a hot brunette who thinks the ice capades are cool. Right. Which is like probably like the assumption being like, that's what I think we are supposed to think that's like how most women would answer that. Yeah, I'm a hot brunette who thinks the ice capades are cool. And I'm a hot blonde who thinks basketball is cool. <laughs> so so maybe the movie did its work on me. <laughs> is there anything else that you observed in the scene that you feel like you have to you just have to express? I think some internalized sexism I have is that Andy and I guess Kate Hudson's performance of Andy is so uh, confident and cute. And I could like feel myself not really like resonating with this type of lead character. And it didn't bother me in this, in the opening credits in the first scene, but I'm curious how the rest of the movie will feel to me knowing that I have like, obviously I have a relationship to this film that is like nostalgic and there's like a young, there's a young version of me that has a relationship to this movie. And I don't know if that's like a a holdover from an earlier viewing or if that's like me, adult 31 year old woman in 2024 balking at that. Because honestly, this time around, I was like, she's really cute. I'm kind of like into her. Right. Like she's, she's kind of adorable actually. And I'm, and I'm not feeling as threatened by it as maybe I was when I was a young kid. There is an interesting shot though. So she announces to her entire office Right, she yells, the Knicks finals. And it's you, so much. It's so over the top. She's the kind of girl who, in my opinion, if I worked in her little cubicle clump, yeah. that I would adore yeah. her. But that if I was someone who was across the room from her and she <laughs> yes. every once in a while just yelled something from a yeah. distance, I would hate her. But there yeah. is a shot of the bullpen and yeah. they're not charmed by her. They're not like, yeah. oh, look at that cute, adorable girl. Being so funny again, they're like, we're in a meeting. <laughs> yeah, she kind of like does what she wants. It is kind of cool and also like strange. And, and kind of the thing where you're like, you have the hot girl privilege to kind of just do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> Hannah, thank you so much for helping me analyze this introduction to Andy. You manage our Patreon. And so it is going to be over there that everybody hears me and Kathleen from this episode analyze our introduction to Ben in all black leather. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Does she talk about childhood wounds or is she also? Um, Thanks for having me. (laughs) Hannah, thank you so much. And I am so glad that you will come back and we will slowly break down your defenses and you will come to have even more mixed feelings (laughs) about this movie. I can't wait. If I could squeal right now, I would. I can't wait! (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Hot and Bothered. We are a small show, so we need your support to run. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotandbotheredrompod. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producers are Caitlin Hoffmeister and me, Vanessa Soltan. Our consulting producer is Russell Meath, who introduced us to Kathleen and many other guests this season. Thanks, Russell. We are edited and produced by Ariana Nettleman, and we are distributed by Acast. 
Thanks, as always, to our one true loves, Elise Kenegaratnam, Gretchen Sneegas, Molly Reilly, Kristen Hall, Leah B., Becky Boo, and Biddy Higgins. We're going to give you new titles now, guys. We just got to figure out what the shtick is. Thank you so much, especially this week, to Kathleen Carlin. And, as always, to our team, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, AJ Yaramas, Hannah Rehack, Margaret H. Wilson, Courtney Brown, Natalie Folkerts, Casper Turkile, and Stephanie Paulsell. 